For January 22nd, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 499, A Human Centipede of Pygmalions. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together, watching the movies we like, listening to the music, reading the books, and, and uh, the most important part, we talk about them together. We hang out and we talk, and we hang out with you and we talk. Uh, I'm Matt Rather. I'm here with my good friends, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matthew. And Mark Lee. Hey there. Uh, the movie today that we're talking about is Phantom Thread, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. I should say written, directed, and shot by Paul Thomas Anderson and starring Daniel Day-Lewis. This is a, a fitting sort of um, return. We're coming full circle because so much of what overthinking it is... Uh, was in its very earliest days was shaped by the Paul Thomas Anderson movie... Uh, there, it's not called I Drink Your Milkshake. It's called There Will Be Blood, <laughs> starring Daniel Day-Lewis. And uh, so it, it's sort of fitting that we're doing this as a number of kind of milestones come around. One is that uh, if you're downloading this on the day it's posted, today is the 10th anniversary of overthinking it. So happy Woo! anniversary, you guys. Yay! Awesome! I'm excited! I know, it's really cool. Congratulations on 10 years of doing whatever it is we do, of, of subjecting the popular culture <laughs> to... No, we're not... We're not uh, Meticulously sewing the couture piece of fabric that is this website. I mean, that's, that's among the better descriptions of what we do that, <laughs> that I feel like I've, I've ever heard. The other thing is we are coming up on the, uh, the 500th Overthinking It podcast. The next episode is going to be our 500th episode. It's actually more because there, are, there have been supplemental episodes and kind of bonuses and stuff that we've done. But the, the you know, 500th regular canonical numbered from number one uh episode of of overthinking it that's uh, uh that's pretty cool so congratulations guys too yeah. on on that milestone uh as yeah. well and thanks thanks everyone for for listening i know we have people who have listened to all 500 and more. I mean, they, you know, we, they, I know those people exist because they email us and like nothing could make me prouder or more, uh, ever so slightly embarrassed than the fact <laughs> that we have talked for 500 hours, give or take, uh, and, um, you know, and you've listened to it. I, I hope it's been worth your time. It's definitely been incredibly rewarding for us. I don't know. You guys have any thoughts about the, uh, the 500 or the 10? Even though we were inspired near the beginning with conversations about there will be blood and Daniel Plainview, I am glad to say that we never have abandoned our child. Have abandoned our boy. <laughs> I have abandoned my child. I've abandoned my website. So for those who don't listen to every episode, I did make a play early in the life of overthinking it for that to be the catchphrase <laughs> from There Will Be Blood. When I Drink Your Milkshake was really on the ascendant. Because I like being a contrarian, you know, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance and all that. Never caught on. Never caught on. But uh, And this is a movie that, that actually they de-abandoned the child at the very end. So there you go. Spoilers. For Phantom Thread, they have a baby. It's inconsequential. <laughs> it has a very nice carriage, which is kind of the point. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. I don't know. This is great. This is the most. This is the most fun thing that I've done consistently, consistently for the last ten years. Yeah, I'll say that. Oh, absolutely. And and uh, so uh, more more on all those anniversary things. Um, next week or the the 500 things next week i just wanted to say if you feel like uh uh if you feel like participating in the 500th episode we we'd love it if you had a a story that or a message or something you wanted to say about the podcast or about you listening to the podcast where were you where were you when you started listening to the podcast and how has your life changed in that time goodness knows our lives have changed a, a great deal in the 10 years that we've been uh writing and and producing uh and recording and 
overshooting, overthinking it. Um, we'd love to know. We'd love to know your story. Uh, we've heard a bunch over the years, and they're they're always good. And we'll include uh, some if they come in. We'll include some of them in the five hundred five hundredth episode. Um, you can email a voice memo, record a voice memo on your phone, and email it to podcast at overthinkingit.com. or you can call the uh, the little used podcast voicemail two zero three two eight five six four zero one two zero three two eight five six four zero one. I have a macro on my keyboard for that. I just want to make sure I got that right. That's right. Two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Anyone, if if anyone still knows how to use their phone, and just uh, you know, if you have anything you'd like to say to us or a story you'd like to tell, uh, we'd love to hear it. We'll make it part of the episode next week. All right. So much for, for 10 years of overthinking it and 500 episodes of this show. Let's move on to Phantom Thread. Now, I think you should watch and listen to this episode, even if you haven't watched the film. It's, uh, it's not in super wide release. And so some people aren't going to, uh, some people aren't going to just be able to see this movie for a long time until it comes out. And, and also I feel like spoilers, it's not a, it's not a conventionally spoilable movie because the point of the movie is sort of the experience of the movie, uh, rather than this or that uh, sort of plot twist or turn. That said, there there are a couple things that happen that are that are surprises. So if you are a big Paul Thomas Anderson fan, big Daniel Day Lewis fan, uh, big fan of nineteen fifties English couture, uh, you might want to hold off until until you watch watch the movie. And so let me let me begin with a story. This is a story told by uh, noted film critic Billy Crystal. Now, he was hosting the Oscars, uh, and in one of the the kind of press junket things that he did, one of the interviews that he did, he talked about getting fitted for a tuxedo by Giorgio Armani, and and Giorgio himself would do you know Billy Crystal's uh, tuxedo fit, fittings for for the Oscar, and uh, he'd wear this Armani tux, and uh, he talked about the fuss, the the level of detail, the high level of scrutiny that he would get, and then uh, they'd go off and kind of look at him from a distance and look at him on a, on a television monitor. And he thought it was fine. He thought it was like a, you know, elegant sort of fabulous tuxedo. And Giorgio said, no, 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 Billy, no, no, I can make you taller. And uh, what Billy Crystal said was, you know, I'm 5'7", but I swear by the time he was done, I looked 5'8". <laughs> this is a this is a movie about a lot of things. It's about men and women. It's about the the kind of myth of the creative genius and what you think about that. Uh, it's about um, art versus commerce, and uh, and it's also about sort of how we construct one another and how we uh, how we kind of make make each other into the things that we want or need or think we need um i don't know pete what do you think this movie is about well one interpretation is that it's a retelling of the thin red line except (laughs) the american soldiers are the women and daniel day lewis is the japanese Uh but (laughs) in that their identities are all blurred along with each other and have to face this sort of semi-invisible implacable foe that they think that they understand in this strange place that they think feels familiar but that's just one thing so this is also a movie that's like 90 percent downton abbey moment yeah and and the phantom thread is what's actually happening in the movie i think in that in that all of the conversations that are happening are about something that's sort of symbolically representative of what's going on to me reading the reviews where they said that this was a movie about relationships that didn't ring true to me to me this felt more like if the Fast and the Furious movies are never about the cars but are about family, this is a movie that isn't actually about relationships but is really about clothes. <laughs> <laughs> but it does so by delving incredibly deeply into relationships in much the same way that the Fast and the Furious movies delve completely deeply into cars. So it's sort of a mirror image in that respect. Uh, I, I don't know. Do you want me to tell you my favorite of the many, many Downton Abbey moments in the movie? I, I would love I nothing more than that. Okay, so early on in the movie, so this is a movie that asks for a lot of trust from the audience. It wants you to watch scenes that have no immediate apparent purpose in order to represent something, give information, create atmosphere, 
spark feeling, but even more than just being atmospheric, to connect things that are happening. And it can succeed, I think, to a large extent because Daniel Day-Lewis commands a lot of attention and, and you sort of implicitly trust that he's doing something for a particular artistic reason because he's so serious about things. But the scene in the beginning of the movie where there's two there's two sides to it. One is where Daniel Day-Lewis is just getting ready. The first thing you see of him is him plucking his nose hairs and ear hairs and shaving himself and putting on his pink stockings and his clothes so that he gets ready. And you see him as a very thin man with giant clothes. <laughs> he almost looks like he belongs in Talking Heads, in that he has this big shirt that's very constructed in his form and these big pants, uh, but he's very spindly on the inside of it. And either immediately before or immediately after that, I think it's after, you see him at breakfast, and him at breakfast being a little prima donna is a big part of what this movie is all about. Uh, even worse than a little prima donna. Let's just get out of the way. I don't endorse the behavior of any of the people in this movie, and you should not do what they do in your real life. Any of them. <laughs> <laughs> not a single one of them. Not even the doctor who like leaves when told to. He should not have. You shouldn't do what any of these people do in their lives. Uh, but then he's at breakfast, and he's talking to his soon-to-be ex-girlfriend <laughs> uh, who's about to be dismissed from service. Thank you for your service. Uh, go home and, and uh, wait for your wait for the VA waiting list to clear up so that you can get treatment for the horrible things you've experienced right. here. Um, and she offers him a pastry plate. And what is the word that he says? Nothing – is it snuggy or snudgy? Sludgy, I believe. Sludgy. Oh, sludgy. I didn't understand what it was, but he doesn't want anything sludgy. And now there's this running motif throughout the entire movie that he hates butter, which which pays off sort of in the very end of the movie. But the idea that Daniel Day-Lewis sees two ways to build a person. One is to feed the person, or not that he sees it, is that the movie is presenting us with two modes for how to make a person bigger, to how to bring a full person into being. And one of them is to feed the person, yep. and all of the symbolism that's around feeding, is, which is huge in this movie, and the other is to dress the person, and, and to put the clothes around the person, and thus to enlarge them. He talks about, oh, well, you don't have breasts, but I'll, I'll give them to you with the clothes, in much the same way that Billy Crystal talks about them saying, I can make you taller. And I, I was five nine by the end of it. Yeah, but that, that like, uh, but I he says not only that it's uh, you have no breasts. He says, and she and that scene by the way, uh, we we should talk about the acting because it's fabulous. But that that scene by the way uh, is great. And and when she's being fitted for the dress, he says you have no breasts, and uh, and she's sort of taken aback and and a little humiliated by this. He says, uh, no, no, you're perfect. It's my job to give them to you. If I choose. Yes. Right. Yes. Yep. And so that like, so by dressing, you are constructing, you're constructing the, uh, you're constructing the person. And, and also yeah. I suppose constricting the person, like some of those, uh, some of those hook and eyelet closures seem a little tight, uh, on, on the back. Um, but I love this dressing, dressing and feeding. And like, uh, because parents are so important and parents are always like, you know, I fed and clothed you, right? Those are the two sort of, those are, are kind of two. Uh, necessary conditions in the in the provision of home or the the sort of provision of care. Anyway, we've been going on. Mark, what did what did you think? All right. Well, just to tag on one additional thought uh, on the theme of you know providing food and, and you know as a way to uh, complete and enlarge someone. Right. The perverseness of this relationship is that um, uh, uh, I'm blanking on her name. The the female interest, Alma. the love interest in Alma. Yeah. Uh, she has the very <laughs> symbolic and metaphorical name of Alma, <laughs> right? Which I believe means what soul or something along those lines. Oh, okay. Uh, well, well, let's let's get back to that in a second. But yeah. uh, the perverseness in this relationship is that she uh, feeds Daniel Tate Lewis mushrooms, which makes him sick, which makes him throw up. In other words, she takes away food in order to for her to be able to come in and provide them play the motherly role. Uh, and nurture him back in, which is super messed up. And let me talk about uh, just throwing a little bit more about how messed up the people are and how uncomfortable this movie made me feel. You guys seem to be pretty into this. Uh, seem to have been pretty into this movie. Uh, I, I, I'm less so. And one of the many reasons for it, it's just going to put this out there. And we, we touched on it already, which is uh, not just the horribleness of the, of the people and the bad things that they do. Um, uh, but it's also the, this particular moment 
um, where uh, putting a movie out there where a very difficult creative man, you know, bends a young woman to his wishes feels like uh, for me, at least running up against the grain of the Me Too movement. It's like a, it's like I, I felt I saw a little bit of Harvey Weinstein on the screen there. Yeah, sure. Maybe that's my kind of like very uncharitable view of it. And the fact that like, honestly, Paul Thomas Anderson movies just aren't my thing. I've seen several other movies of his that I don't like. And There Will Be Blood, I, I appreciated, but haven't revisited it. And like wasn't actually part of what we're thinking at like an initial wave when uh, everybody was going crazy over There Will Be Blood. Um, so uh, I just wanted to put that out there, right? That, you know, be, beyond uh, the, the sort of the, the uncomfortableness that um, – you know that the movie intends clearly intends to make you feel there's this meta uncomfortableness as well and i want to make sure that that's out there because when we are talking about um you know uh, the designer going you know like just kind of prodding over this young woman and saying you have no breasts but i'll give them to you if i if i'd so choose like that is all like uncomfortable things to hear uh, and i want to make sure that like it's being oh, put yeah. in that context and we are aware of the context oh totally i think it's not even by i mean the timing is probably Somewhat incidental, just because it probably took a long time to make this movie, is my guess. I don't think this was rushed like the post was rushed in order to feel topical. But, you know, it's a tale as old as time. <laughs> it's a song as old as rhyme. Uh, creatively domineering. I I, I only get chili peppers by cursing, because I would. Uh, terribly abusive, horrible boss versus relatively less powerful underling. Um, and I think that... This is, I mean, There Will Be Blood is about the oil industry and shows it at its worst. This is about the fashion industry and shows it at its, maybe not worst, but pretty close. Because I could probably, I'm trying to think if there are movies about the fashion industry that show it being worse, like Les Miserables, maybe, is worse in terms of how it depicts the fashion industry. But, um, which is a very, it's a kind of a joke if you haven't seen Les Miserables, because there's one of the characters who works in like a textile mill and ends up getting fired to becoming a prostitute <laughs> and having her teeth torn out of her head and sold i, 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 so admit, I, have, I haven't seen uh, the double was prada but uh, uh there's something like that going on although without the well the different type of gender dynamic going on there yeah i feel like the devil wears prada is taking a lot of the problems that are in this movie and feels obligated to explain them and this is a movie that doesn't feel obligated to explain those problems but merely mires you in them and for me the pleasure of it was not in admiring what they were doing but in the different sort of symbolic resonances and and the the what well what is being shown what does it mean uh, how does it connect to the other things that are happening in the movie figuring out the movie while you're watching it because the other thing that I felt about this movie is that I didn't feel like it was about really real people and I don't know how much you guys felt about this but for me it felt like once you establish this idea that Daniel Day-Lewis's character wants to build himself and build other people as clothes because he sees this as sort of a good thing to do because that way you can make people perfect and people who are fed and biological are grossly imperfect and horrible, which is, of course, a terrible attitude to bring into your life. But this is, you know, psychopaths always think that they're the hero of their own story. And uh, although I wouldn't have ventured to say that he's a psychopath strictly, he does seem to – he might be a sociopath. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't want to necessarily diagnose him because that kind of gets away from the discourses in and the also, movie. And also like uh, pretty much everyone in a fairy tale is is a sociopath really yeah. just because they're also kind of monomaniacal and they all – there's no one in there's no one in a fairy tale who really thinks, oh, you know, what is, what is good for the society at large, right? Like what is good for the people around me? It's like I want my candy house. I want my <laughs> – Candy House, witch, um, and that, uh, and yeah. So I, I think you're right in that. Like this is, it sort of plays with. It's set in a historical period, but it could be. Uh, uh, it, and it's it's pretty exacting in terms of what it depicts for that uh, for that historical period. The particular fashions, the automobiles, the um, you know type of phone uh, that all that kind of stuff but um and and the the you know look of the the people and whatnot but it it really could be anywhere this isn't a movie that relies on this could be you know this could be a science fiction movie set 400 years in the future it could be set in the you know the mythical kingdom of so-and-so right it could be uh set i don't know 
five hundred years ago yeah. in the in the the court of of Queen Elizabeth, right? Like that. Yeah. This is like the it's it's using uh, it it sort of is using kind of deeply resonant archetype and symbol, and it's it's also not, and, and it's also using a, a kind of primal. Uh, set of associations like the woods, for example, mm-hmm. and like going into the woods, the mushrooms, the foraging of mushrooms, like they come out of the woods. And that's just like, you know, what, what are the woods? Well, what aren't the woods really? But, <laughs> but like that's, that, that's, it's not, it's not that. So yeah, so, so it's a little bit, I mean, this is maybe this is hand waving away some of the, some of the criticisms, but like this is, um, it's not, I, I'm not sure it's necessarily the most productive thing we can do is to to kind of subject it to an interrogation based on the the political tenor of our time, mostly because it was probably conceived before uh, it was probably conceived before you know recent events have brought these kinds of power dynamics to the front for in real life. And also that's just not, that's just not where it's playing. And then also like, this is, this is stickier. This is sticky, like a shuggy thing or a, a goody thing or a schmooky dooky ooky thing, whatever, whatever that word was. But, um, a little bit like there, there has to be room for art to, kind of present a problem or to present a kind of dynamic and to kind of live in it a little bit, to kind of feel out the edges of it, to sort of, to run its fingers along the seams of the dynamic and see what hidden messages uh, are sewn into them. And, and I I think we need um, not that anyone here is actually trying to do this, but I think there, there could be a temptation to kind of do what Pete says the devil wears Prada does, which is kind of answer it to kind of like wrap it up to, to, uh, sew it all up and that this that's not that's not what this is and like one of the things i appreciated most about the technique here um was the willingness to just kind of sit with something like there are so many so so many shots in this movie of people looking at other people expectantly waiting for some waiting for something to happen you know with a with a sort of um incomprehensible kind of Mona Lisa type smile. Uh, Vicky Kripes as the, as Alma is, uh, you know, fantastic at this. Um, she has a great face that, that just sort of radiates this sort of openness and expectancy that, uh, that, you know, what's, what's going to happen. And like, she's just allowed to be for, um, you know, for, what seems like ages in the kind of the current trend of, of editing as a sort of barrage as a sort of eye watering barrage of pummeling images. Um, that, that was good. I also, by the way, I saw this on, on 70 millimeter, which is probably as, as Paul Thomas Anderson intends us, uh, intends us to see it. And man, guys, I got to tell you, film is rad, right? Like I know, uh, you know, and, and I love, I love digital cinema. I think it's fantastic. I think it has its own kind of beauty and it's, you know, it has it, its own kind of emerging, uh, class of, of virtuoso artists who are doing incredible things with it. But, but uh, it takes over from film largely for economic reasons. I mean, it takes over as the dominant mode largely for economic reasons. Man, there are aesthetic reasons to shoot and especially to, to exhibit on uh, – well, I guess it, if you exhibit it, it doesn't make sense unless you shoot on on film. Because the the solidity of the images, the kind of the range of colors, especially in the darks and the blacks, and this is a movie with a lot of like shadowy um, – a lot of shadowy uh, uh, scenes and lighting and things like this. Like the, the, and the, the, the way you can kind of penetrate into the darkness and see into the blacks with different gradations. They don't all get crushed to this kind of muddy color is so so gorgeous uh on film anyway so to touch on what mark said again i think so this movie i think paul thomas anderson has commented that this movie is influenced by similar sorts of movies among which is the film gaslight and so just to sort of let to talk about some of the assumptions that we're making when we look at a movie only strictly in the context of the discursive tools that we have based on our current culture, the idea of gaslighting doesn't pre-exist the movie Gaslight in, in terms of the word for it. 
And this is the notion of the, the trope is that the guy keeps turning the lights down. And this is an old play that got adapted into a movie in the 40s. The guy keeps is a form of psychological abuse where he's turning the lights down and telling the woman that the lights haven't been turned down and she's crazy. This is where the name gaslighting comes from. It comes from this movie that's about it. Now, we can then take this idea now that it's been kind of medicalized and treat it as if it's this sort of a priori medical precept about how people work. And in that case, if it, something doesn't fit this precept, then it must be wrong. Or if something doesn't kind of emerge from the lessons of this very clearly and, and very deliberately, then it must be bad. Uh, and But I don't think that that's how we got here, and I don't think that's how we get from here. So I would definitely locate Phantom Thread in stories of how people in relationships abuse each other, manipulate each other, ter- do terrible things to each other, and maybe it can increase our vocabulary with it. Because the real problem with seeing this only through the lens of current events is that the movie has internal vocabulary to describe and talk about what is happening, and getting into that vocabulary is, I think, what is interesting about about the movie as much as anything else and it may be even interesting in terms of its politics like what specifically does the movie do that makes it into this situation that resonates so strongly or maybe doesn't resonate as strongly uh, with contemporary issues and so i wouldn't just hammer it down by saying well it's it's about a bad time i think it's no. at a good time in I, much I the same way that know. that yeah that uh that it will be love was in the aftermath of the war in iraq and afghanistan which were so motivated by global uh, oil conflicts, right? So it's it's sort of similar in that respect. Yeah, uh, I, I don't be clear, I'm not, I don't mean to hammer this movie down for that particular reason. You know, I, as I mentioned before, I wanted to bring it up to make sure that folks are aware that we we are also aware of the context and also like to put out one of the several reasons why uh, why I didn't like the movie. Um, and uh, to get it back more to sort of the discussion, Pete, what you're talking about, like you know, it, it sort of like sets up. Um, and, and teases out a, a vocabulary for how this all works, right? I was just, I, I came away from it at the end feeling like if that's, if that's, if it's sketching out a vocabulary, I had like half of the words that yeah. I needed, right? It that really I had like, give this, you like a lot of tools, really yeah. like screwed up relationship at the end and in, in stark contrast with the beautiful clothes um, uh, that they're, that they are making. Um, and also this, uh, notion that's teased at the very end, which is a little bit out of step with his time, um, and is not chic, as you said. Um, but without the sense that it all came together, uh, neatly, or at least like in a satisfying way to me, but Pete, it sounds like it did so more for you. So like, uh, I don't know, like, like talk me through a little bit. Sure. So what here's a, a moment. Here's a moment. So the, the movie is called Phantom Thread, and there's a scene in the movie where he says he likes to sew secrets into things. So I approach this movie with the perspective that that is part of the key that's been given to, to you to understand what's happening in the movie. That there is a lot that is happening in this movie that you are not shown and not is not being explained to you. And so watching it, you should be critical of everything that you see. And in that respect, by interrogating everything that you see, you... Are able to see, you were able to kind of understand the characters in a different way than you would if you only understood them based on what they say. So, so as a, as an example, it, when Daniel Day Lewis drives into the town to go to the bed and breakfast or what have you, where he meets Alma, where he meets his soul mother, Alma meaning nourisher or soul or feeder, right? He meets this archetypical soul mother who, by the way in case you haven't noticed, superficially resembles his own mother, which they come out and show you in a dream sequence during the movie. On the way into town, Daniel D. Lewis stops at a gas station. And he he stops at the gas station, and he goes into the gas station building and insists that the guy come out to check the oil pressure and the the oils and, sorry, check his oil levels and check the tire pressure in his car. This is a weird scene, right? Uh, Like, why does this happen? Why is it just an establishing shot that he's gone to the countryside? Why do they show us that he's checking the tire pressure and the oil level in his car? Well, one of it might be, okay, he believes in clothes. The car is like clothes. The car needs to be perfect. The clothes needs to be perfect. He needs to be a specific sort of person to be in this car in this place. But if you watch what happens, there's this very smooth sequence of events where Daniel Day-Lewis goes through this, this date that he sets up with Alma. Part of the date is he takes her on a set of spirited driving through the windy roads outside of town. He checks his oil and his tire pressure that morning before he even meets her. Right? Mm. 
So this tells me that why did why did uh, is it Cyril? Is that his sister's name? Yeah. Yep. His, yeah his old his old so and so with whom it's somewhat implied that he has like a marriage kind of relationship that might be incestuous in some way, right? That's another sort of phantom thread that may or may not be in this movie. You old so and so, what's their deal? Uh, are, are is she married? No, right? Like that kind of thing. And they both answered. Uh, both the women answered to Mrs. Woodcock. Yep, yep. Yeah, so, yeah. so there's this idea that he potentially has this incestuous relationship with his sister. And when he gets bored of his girlfriend, the si- and at the end of the movie, by the way, uh, Alma drops in her closing monologue that when they when she imagined them as older, they gathered together all the people from their lives, and she just sort of drops in there their lovers. Yep. Like of all the people that show up. So it's implied that these are polyamorous relationships, but they never show it to you. And and uh, there's this idea. I think one of the things that makes the movie more interesting than other movies that are like it is that Alma has a lot of her own mystery to her. It's not just that she's a quote-unquote strong character. It's that she's a player in it also, which means that she doesn't just get to be a canvas on which this is all thrown on, which I guess is one of the big conflicts of the movie, which is that Daniel Day – that's what it is. So just to go back to finish off what I was saying before, and here's the other big one. Matt, you, you, I would imagine you know this more than, than, than Mark does. No offense, Mark. You know what Welsh rarebit is? I sure do. Can you explain to everybody what – because it's, it's the thing that Daniel Day-Lewis orders at the bed and breakfast from Alma, and I think that it is highly important. Well, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a piece of toast and cheesy sauce. Well, yes, but why is it called Welsh rarebit? Oh, uh, oh gosh, I don't know the, I don't know the no, history of you it. You've got to watch your Alton Brown. Watch your Good Eats. <laughs> I, probably did, I probably did at some point. They, used to, they had it at Maury's when we were in college. Yeah. That was the – you know, it was one of yeah. their like four items that they served there up on the, up on the wall or something. So my understanding, based on Alton Brown and Good Eats, is that Welsh rarebit is a sort of jokey mispronunciation of Welsh rabbit. And it's cheese that you put in a pot and you warm over a fire. So it's sort of like poor man's fondue. But the idea is that Welsh people are too poor and rustic to have actual meat at their meals. And so a Welsh rabbit is melted cheese. Because <laughs> they don't have actual rabbits because they're too poor and stupid. It's an English racist joke. Uh, is, is sort of what, <laughs> what, what I was sort of learned from Alton Brown, whether or not that's true. Uh, sort of like calling putting deodorant on yourself before you leave the house an Irish shower, right? Um, is that Welsh rabbit is melted cheese with bread, the most basic sort of food that you can have. But here's the thing. It's not real rabbit. But here, here's the other thing. Welsh rabbit is good. It's tasty. It's basically fondue, like with just slight variations. It's a decent breakfast food. And, but the, so the first thing that Are Daniel you kidding? Daniel- a piece of toast soaked in cheesy sauce with an egg on top? Like that, you know, yeah, absolutely. Good Solid. for you. Know? But but it's not a real rabbit. It's the appearance of a rabbit. And and it and it's this idea that it's going to sort of fake nourish you. It's this idea that the warmness and the comfortingness and the flavor of it is going to nourish you in some of the similar way that a rabbit might. And so he goes into town, he gets his car ready for the driving date before it happens, he orders a dish that is all appearance and is kind of deceptive about not really having any substance to it, and then he orders all this food, which we never see him eat, and and, and he wants to keep the receipt. Okay, that says to me what he wants is not the food. He's not actually hungry. What he wants is the woman who will bring him the food. And that the and he and this comes from his talk at the bar about how he's been thinking about his mother. And he says he's talking to Cyril and he's he's talking to his friends and he's saying, Oh, he's talking to Cyril, he says, Oh, I've been thinking about my mother lately. She's been very close to my thoughts. And what I take this to mean, tying it all together, is that Cyril and Daniel Day Cyrus, Cyril and um Wood what's the guy's first name? Reynolds uh, Reynolds Cyril. Woodcock. Yeah. So Cyril, Jesus. So Cyril and Reynolds have a relationship where Cyril, where Reynolds is polyamorous uh, and and takes in young muses that he then uses for inspiration to make his dresses. And at the beginning, Alma tells us, "What did you give him? I gave him every part of me." Do I interpret that to mean she gave every part of her personality and her aspect that and everything that that was sort of about her as a person to him to use as inspiration to make dresses for other people, and that Cyril sends him out to the country in order to find a new woman to be his muse because it's impacting his work in a negative way that he's no longer inspired by the girl that he's currently keeping around. This is, of course, heinous, but Cyril is villainous and and uh uh gosh i keep wanting to call him roquefort maybe i just have cheese on the brain (laughs) (laughs) woodcock mr woodcock is uh is also like a you know mentally off the chain sociopathic kind of person 
but they're bringing these women in in order to deconstruct the the deconstruct the fed person and making them into the clothing to put on other people to make the other people into what he sees as this perfection uh you know like i'm going to make you when she she has a monologue that says oh the, when i wear the dress i feel perfect then Daniel Lewis says to hit her you are perfect and you know what he's going to do exploit her perfectness and put it on other people and then later you have her talk to the belgian princess the belgian princess is having her dress put on and alma comes up and kind of talks to her and she says hello i live here and what I see this as almost like you, – do you guys ever see uh, Bleach, the anime or the manga about uh, uh, Japanese school children who become Grim Reapers and get magical swords? Uh, I mean not, they, now I feel like I have. They, uh, it's pretty much all you need to know. Um, they have Their swords have personalities, and they each have to sort of talk to their sword at some point in order to unlock its true power, which is, of course, very silly. Um, but I felt this as a dialogue not between two women, but between a woman and her dress. That Alma and, – and this is not just that Alma is, like, imaginary. It's not like she's all a dream. But she becomes deconstructed and reconstructed by Mr. Woodcock and becomes these dresses that are then put on other women for Cyril's profit. Cyril is exploiting her as much as Mr. Woodcock is. And what – and her place in it is that she wants the control. She wants the, uh, the influence, the power, the authority over what happens. Uh, and she wants to sort of transform – Basically, he thinks that he needs to transform from being an old fuddy-duddy into being a more modern and creative sort of designer. He needs fresh inspiration, and a house that doesn't change is a dead house, he says. So he goes out and he finds a woman that he sees as more authentic and more working class than the woman he's currently with, with the idea that this is going to inspire him to make better clothing. She, instead of being the pliable person that you might expect her to be, is very strong-willed and forces him to change, which causes him to go through these tortured fits. This thing that is happening is both— both a relationship and also a creative process that he is creating the dresses that he is deconstructing from Alma. Every time they have a fight, he has a huge flurry of productive activity. Every time she challenges him, he, he makes up a bunch of new dresses. Does he and, change though? Like unpack that a little bit there. Uh, I mean, like he, you know, he has productive bursts of productivity, um, but uh, his style, I, I, we're not, I don't think we are telegraphed in, in this movie that his style changes, becomes more innovative. In fact, we're told the opposite. Yeah, but doesn't his, doesn't his personality change a little bit? Like, I, mean, I, I Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I think that the... Uh, a bit. I, right, like, by, well, by the end, he's actually, it seems like they are in a workable... They're in a sort of workable thing where where he'll ignore her for a little while and then she'll poison him and then <laughs> you know she'll get she'll get attention right like it's 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 interesting like you can sort of talk about um changing shape i was thinking about clothing and food right like one alters the body from the outside uh by concealing or emphasizing right and one alters the body from the inside by by nourishing alma right and that uh that she's he's sort of modulating um the level of closeness that she has to him by by concealing or revealing progressively, and she's modulating the level of closeness that he has to her by poisoning or, uh, you know, by poisoning or nourishing, um, sort of, uh, right, like in proportion to kind of, kind of where, where they're at. And, by you know it's it sort of starts all in one it sort of starts all at one side and she sort of comes in and finds and and finds her own right like i'm not i i'm not sure i think it does a disservice to her to call her just a muse or just sort of a uh, uh, subordinate to him uh, i think the story of the movie is the story of him realizing that she holds her own uh that she holds her own against him and that that she can in her way kind of participate with him you know in in a a similar sort of um a similar sort of game right yeah what exactly is the nature of my game <laughs> um but woo, that woo. <laughs> <laughs> Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. But okay, so here's 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 a question, just a like a plot level question about the movie. The movie is framed with bits of narration from from Alma. We see that those are um 
we see that those are from a scene that actually happens that we see uh, bits of that's a fireside conversation between Alma and the doctor, presumably when uh, when Reynolds is sick, when I just got to call him Woodcock, right? Like, which is, you know, uh, just such a uh, such a metaphorically dense name with with illusions, not just the smutty one that you're thinking of. Thank you. But uh, in in uh, Hamlet, um, he uh, uh, Polonius tells his daughter to stay away from Hamlet. Uh, he says uh, many. He's made many tenders uh, of his affection, and he says, "Ha! Tender yourself more dearly, or you'll tender me a fool." He refers to them as springes to catch woodcocks. Right? Like these things are traps to uh, to catch uh, birds in, and that like the the way that he is, you know, sort of trapped by by what she does is a uh, you know is is a sort of counter story. Is another is another phantom story of the movie. But here's the, here's the question, right? When does that conversation take place? When does the conversation between Alma and the doctor that provides the narration that frames the movie take place, right? Like there are two doctor visits, uh, one in the city where he's told to F off and one in the country um, where it also seems like he doesn't stay. And, uh, and where does that, you know, where does that, um, where does that fireside chat fit in? I don't think, I mean, it, I, it doesn't I, really. I mean, if I had to guess, it would be at the end because it's in the context at the end where um, uh, Alma has more or less you know, made peace with and is satisfied with the status of the relationship. Whereas earlier, um, when uh, when the doctor pays the first visit, it's all very much up in the air, right? We don't know how this whole poison scheme is going to play out, both in terms of making sure that he doesn't die and also that, you know, that they can have this weird um, uh, simpatico relationship as a result of the poisoning. So that was my interpretation of it. I don't know how consequential it is, really, but I, I assume that it happens towards the end. Yeah, and yeah, then, I, yeah. 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 Sorry, sorry, Pete. Yeah, you. Oh no, the same. I just thought that this was a. Con- she had to at some point explain to the doctor why she called him, right? Or because <laughs> because he makes her call the doctor at the end. Yeah, and she has to explain. And I guess they have they have a long conversation about it. That's how what I interpreted. But maybe it happens sometime later. I don't know. And they're, or maybe if they're polyamorous, like you know the. Uh, she and the doctor get together. I mean, poly, uh, polyamorous on. is another is another one of these words that we have now that that like we think sort of descri- well, it, it probably does describe a reality that has always existed, but it hasn't always existed in the way that we imagine it now. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like this. That's a really good point. Yeah, you know, like and that and that like a little bit the the our terms right are always sort of ex post facto. You know, are are like our words for things, and it's it's one of the one of the kind of the good things that art can do is to kind of make strange and to force us to kind of encounter behavior or encounter experience uh, in a way that that transcends isn't the right word but in in a way that is beyond um our uh is beyond our our conceptions of of the kind of the categories in terms available to our life and i think like polyamory like is is one of those uh, you know probably well there are probably a lot of them that could be that could be applied to uh applied to this film um abuse is one of them yeah sure right um, yeah. yeah, use and abuse, right? Like the the because actually for for us, sort of use like I'm I'm using you and I'm abusing you are are both bad. They're different. They're they're uh, bad in different ways. But those are supposed to be uh, opposites: use and abuse. You know mm. that. Uh, but but uh, but I digress. They are all key ingredients in sweet dreams, of course. <laughs> I mean, who am I to disagree? <laughs> uh, that's um, so uh, so food, right? Like uh, just a couple, just a couple stray observations about food. Uh, he's uh, uh, when she's sort of uh, throwing shade. Uh, Cyril says to Alma, "Oh, he likes his his women with a little belly." Right. She's she's sort of too fat, you know, and and eating the connection of of eating and fat. Uh, Later on in the movie, we see him eat one of those sweet pastries uh, for breakfast. Um, 
her uh, Alma and the kind of the the toast buttering buttering the toast and kind of the scraping sound that the knife makes um, the knife makes on the on the uh, the toasted bread right like and and a sort of and also like also at the end when he vomits you know the the omelet up and he says you don't want it you want to get out of here for this right like sort of the the and and the body right is contained in the bathroom you can't see it you shouldn't look at that you shouldn't look at um the kind of the functions of the body the the throwing up and and like the the clothes are a uh, are a container for the body as well right like are a kind of are a, a kind of armor for the body as a, a sort of denial um of the physical realm which is why you know in the uh which is why in the the wedding scene the wedding that he doesn't want to go oh, to Jesus. of the awful woman this is why the dress has to be taken away from her mark you at least loved this scene, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I was saying I was loved it. Just I like, thought you that were like was, you were hooting like, and hollering and like uh, clapping, uh, clapping yeah. for her, right? <laughs> so pumping my fist. I was like, All right, dude, he's he's trolling you, Mark. If you didn't like this movie, this is probably your least favorite scene. By everything, Mark. No, actually, I mean, I, okay, I didn't like the movie, but like uh, like the rest of the movie, I found this scene really evocative and interesting and and like packed full of ideas. Right, so just to set the stage a little bit for what happens to this, for those who hadn't seen the movie, um, Woodcock, you know, he's uh, his list of clients is, is long. It's like you know, s- uh, society people, this, that, and the other. And uh, he receives this woman. I think her name is Margaret. Um, there's clearly something wrong with her from the moment she steps foot into the um, into the house. Um, beyond the fact that just her physical appearance is not pleasant, I mean, there's no way to kind of describe it other than that she's large. Um, and just uh, bloated, I think, is actually a good a good word for it. Her speech is slurred. It maybe even like is suggested that she's not really all there in the head. She's yeah. uh, she's being handed off to some sort of sham society um, marriage to uh, like an El Salvadoran or something like Dominican that, and man, a Dominican, Dominican man. And like there's this mention of some sort of misdeeds during the Holocaust that come up during during like a a a, a press conference which they have to hold for some reason. Um, and all this is to say that Woodcock doesn't want to make the dress, doesn't want to go to the wedding, but does it because, you know, the money and this, that and the other. Um, there is a lot of attention being paid to the fabric around the neck and how it does it conceals the face and conceals uh, the neck and conceals the chest. Um, ultimately, he makes the dress. Uh, the two of them, they go to the wedding. They're having a terrible time. Margaret, the bride herself, the awful woman, is so drunk. Um, and just kind of disgusting, uh, a disgusting specimen that she falls asleep at her own wedding is awkwardly carted off the kind of her, her, her seat of honor at the wedding into the hotel room. And then and Alma, because she's so disgusted by this, incites Bat- Woodcock to re uh, to confiscate the dress, to repossess the dress. And like, essentially, you're not worthy of this. And they literally go to the hotel room. Um, they she's passed out drunk. And yet they insist that they're just going to have to they just take the dress right off of her that's the uh that's the the recession version of say yes to the dress it's repossess the dress (laughs) (laughs) so it is a memorable sequence for sure is she a heroin addict Maybe. I didn't think Maybe about that. that. I just I thought mean, she, was, she was a lot. I mean, it wouldn't be. I mean, it wouldn't be. It would be like laudanum or something like oh, yeah. that. Well, I guess <laughs> it's not the 1890s. Okay, yeah. But. <laughs> well, that's that's one of the. I'm not saying that because it adds any particular insight into the specific scene, but just that it's sort of how the movie works. There's clearly something wrong with her. We don't really know what's wrong with her. We don't really have any way of accessing her personality. We only know how she looks. And part and how of how she, she acts looks, with, the, with the clothes on. Well, yeah. Well, how she looks and how she acts are the same. That's that. There's no. This isn't yeah. a movie. This is not a, mo- a uh, movie about work clothes. No, he doesn't make any overalls. <laughs> Nobody, in fact, wears any overalls in the entire movie. I don't think, which is unfortunate. Maybe there's some that I missed out. Of are right. you saying that this is this isn't one where he actually made this the one outfit that Daniel Plainview uh, wears in There Will Be Blood? I mean, I feel like there has to be a P.T. Anderson verse where they all sort of tie together. You know. I actually think they all live in the Heathcliff Heathcliff Riffraffiverse. Yeah. There's just this place where there's a junkyard full of talking cats. It's an extended universe play. No, no. uh, Sorry, that was out of nowhere. But, um, yeah, just the idea that you don't know what she's real. Nobody is defined by what they do. 
everybody is defined by how things look in this movie and how you do is how you look. They're the same. There's no distinction. Right. And you look at no the poisonous, that. you look at the, the mushrooms and compare them to the pictures in the book to find out if they're poisonous or not. The poison is, is almost like an aesthetic quality more than it is an intrinsic, like biological quality of the mushrooms. Yeah. Like the gills. Yeah, exactly. Don't take any mushrooms with gills and they have that wonderful yellow powdery substance on them. Uh, by the way, that seems like pretty accurate, good advice for picking mushrooms based on my own experience foraging. But, uh, but yeah, but we don't know what her problem is other than just that she, the dress and her don't, aren't working. And then there's this moral affront that's taking place because our full moral engage with, with and moral engagement with this woman is from the outside. And so is Daniel Day Lewis's. And so the, disregard and quote-unquote abuse that you might say happens in this relationship is is it's very important to recognize that there is no connection between these two people that passes beyond what they see of each other not to excuse it but to understand it the like the mechanism of it why why does it matter to him and to her and to alma so much that she's disgracing the dress because who you are and how you look are not are not different and this dress is supposed to give you this a perfection of self a perfection of identity. That's what the house is selling. That's what the couture house offers. And if this, the coat, if the dress is on somebody who is passing out from laudanum abuse or drinking themselves to death in front of everybody, then that's a failure of the dress as, as much as it is of the person, which is kind of an interesting upstream causal relationship. Not to excuse it, of course, but to explain it and to understand why Alma is on board with it also, because she sees herself as part of the house. Well, now, now, yeah, now she does. It's a, it's an yeah. important character moment for her because it's, it's one she's willing to kind of take on the mantle of the of the house right and like take on the mantle of the kind of the meanings that he wants to ascribe that that uh woodcock wants to ascribe to his to his uh his dresses and and things like this um there's an interesting i mean just with with this like there's an interesting thing with him right like i think that that beyond like beyond him as an employer right which is how we're tempted to to think of him beyond him as as a sort of lover or a bad boyfriend or something yeah. which is like uh, these are all there are other, there are there are a lot of things there are a lot of kind of ca- categories um another one is artist right and we haven't we haven't sort of talked about this head on yet we haven't faced it head on the way the camera faces so many of the characters almost completely head on in its shot shot like almost directly in front of the uh in front of the person they're never really looking into the lens it's um do you notice how often people are by themselves in the frame in in this uh in this film and how, how rarely, um, in the, you know, uh, it's, it's very important when two people are, are depicted in, in an actual frame together. Um, there, this is like a, a kind of myth of the creative genius, like solitary creative visionary genius, a capital R romantic, uh, version of, um, version of artistic creation. Right. And that's, uh, and, and you got, you got to wonder like, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson does a lot of these guys like uh, Daniel Plainview is one Philip Seymour Hoffman and the master is another one, uh, you know, and on and on. Uh, Nights lampoons it a little bit. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but you know what? Like I, I think on, I think we are meant to be, I think Boogie Nights wholeheartedly endorses yeah. the, the, like the, um, making porn on film right and like just the art the craftsmanship of these people and they're 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 it's their dedication more than anything it's their it's their kind of monomania uh their sort of single-minded pursuit of the of the thing that they're doing um more than anything that kind of that that makes them worthy of respect and so you have to wonder if it's and he is also like this sort of famously uh you know, um, particular, uh, you know, meticulous, uh, artist himself, right? Like he, he wrote, directed and shot this, uh, this movie, which is a job usually split among, you know, uh, or more people. Yeah. Does it dozens of people sometimes <laughs> in, uh, in the kind of factory of Hollywood movie, movie production. Right. And that like, this is sort of a, a metaphor for him. Uh, I think, I think it would be hard not, to read it that way, not that I think he's endorsing 
the, some of the interpersonal stuff in 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 a way. I don't know. Is there anything? Did you guys get pick up anything in that speaks to us or speaks to our time in the uh, in the kind of the myth of the the solitary, not uh, responsive to market forces, you know, marching to his own tune, um, uh, kind of lone genius model of the artist, man, male lone genius man uh, model of the artist? Sure. I thought it was a big center of what was going on with the movie in yeah. the first place. One pattern that I think explores that a bit, which is interesting, is the purple. It's following the purple. Yeah. Purple being the color of royalty and being able to clothe someone in purple, making that you have the authority to say that they are the person who is most honored, most powerful. So it begins with Woodcock garbing this noblewoman in purple for her uh, for her big event that she's going to. I don't even remember exactly what it is. And she wears a specific dress. And then it moves on, and he's trying out colors on Alma, and he finally picks purple for her and makes her a purple dress, which looks a lot more modern and has, has narrowed down. It doesn't have the structure that the first dress had. And it's, it's more, you know, like shaped to her figure. It's, it uses the Flemish lace, all that other stuff. Or she may, he makes that dress after he does the purple on her. But when you get all the way to the end, when he's in the bathroom, he's the one wearing the purple. That, that she garbs him in purple. And what I take this to mean somewhat in the idea, in the, if this is a movie that's about the creative genius and the power of the creative genius, that there is a – the creative genius is uh, – is, is you, you creative genius onto someone. It is transitive. You, you don't just creative genius. You creative genius a person. And, and you, it is a pygma- – it's a series of – it's basically a human centipede of Pygmalions is what it is, <laughs> where everyone, everyone is Pygmalioning the person in front of them and being Pygmalioned by the person behind them, and, um, which is awfully gross. But this is a pretty gross movie that involves a lot of gross and dangerous things that people shouldn't eat. But, uh, but he's Pygmalioning these women. <laughs> like asparagus. Yeah. <laughs> with with butter um, but in the end the creative genius ends up being an, a commercial tool who's being controlled and exploited for because of his emotional weakness and like, like he becomes commoditized by the women in his life uh in this way that the and it's this this thing he does to himself he tortures himself he subordinates himself he creates his own torturer but she also already exists she he sort of goes to find her and so there's this idea in one degree he kind of thinks that he makes her but really she made herself and he thinks that he's in control of her but really she's in control of herself and he finds that appealing and thinks it's part of the plan but but really it's part of her plan and so this distinction between kind of who is the geniuser and who is the geniusy is being shifted uh, but at the end of the day it's like the the creative genius is um, in her lap or on the toilet, <laughs> right? And and his work is being exploited for the benefit of her and for the house that she's part of, uh. um, which I think is interesting because it's a yeah, it's a movie about because the creative genius isn't a good person, <laughs> and the people exploiting the creative genius aren't good people. So we can get away from this idea that that there's an exploiter who's bad and a person being exploited who's good. It's kind of all around. No, the yeah, yeah, that's Melbury Bush, right? That's why it doesn't. That's why it does a lot of the political analysis of this movie doesn't work, right? Because literally, no one is any good. You know, like yeah. I mean, no... it works, but it's not total. It's like partial. You're yeah. seeing one piece of it. But anyway, sorry, yeah. go, on, go on. Well, yeah, it's yeah. yeah, right. It's reductive. There you go. That yeah. that like there's nowhere, really nowhere, really nowhere at all to hang your hat in this movie in terms of, I mean, maybe the seamstresses like are very nice women, you know? <laughs> sure. But they still made an ugly dress <laughs> for the Belgian there were, princess. They well, were forced, I don't know. To work, I mean, forced to work overtime without well, this little pay. Well, yeah, yeah. Did they not get pay? This is a. Uh, I, I'm just. I'm. I'm just joking. Uh, but no, if they, that's the kind of thing that would and... put in the movie. That's the kind of thing that would be hidden in the movie that these women aren't being paid overtime. Like that's a detail that would be important if it's in there. But I don't remember because she was saying she was whispering things in the background when she was talking to the other women, and our focus was on uh, Alma the whole time. So like, there's another phantom thread. What's going on there? What's going on there? Sorry, I interrupted again. I'm just very excited about this. Talking about this movie, it's a real. Uh, it's a real Ouroboros of of. Uh, Embroidery. <laughs> well, I mean, just on, on the theme of the Ouroboros or Ouroboros into that kind of the the genius um, or the the, the the genius begetting the geniusing and it kind of coming back all around, right? Just to really hammer at home is the whole like, thing that Alma takes on the motherly role, right? And that 
the, the woodcock came from his mother um, and then kind of creates and then he t- loses his mother and in turn creates a mother to mother him, mm-hmm. um, which is it, it's just it, it comes. I keep coming back to the word unsettling. This movie oh, yeah. is like, it's absolutely what it's out there to do. Um, maybe it's just not what I was ready for on a Sunday on a nice Sunday. Morning. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just got to treat it like a European movie instead of an American movie. <laughs> I had some nice I had one of my the movie theater I went to had some German snacks. And so I got some German way rather than Kit Kats. I got like European Kit Kats when I watched this movie. <laughs> I mean, the the the, uh, the reaction in my theater, which was in an art theater, you know, was with the, the one place on West L.A. that you could see it in 70 millimeters. So it was full of of pretentious d-bags like me um the 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 reaction was like audible laughter at a lot yes. of moments uh mm-hmm. in this movie i think because not because well i suppose it's funny i suppose the over-the-top commitment to uh to a lot of these things are funny um i suppose it's it's funny in the way in the same way that sort of watching watching snm would be funny if you weren't like uh invested in the scene you know what i mean like if you weren't like invested in that in in like that particular uh thing like that just the the commitment just the the commitment um was uh i and and the kind of the over the top nature of of some of it was was pretty uh uh, was pretty funny to people. I, you know, and I yeah. don't know. I was like, uh, I was, I was looking around. I was sort of wondering because I was more spellbound. Uh, like I, you know, the, the just the kind of the pace, the the music, the uh, visual beauty. Like was I, I was in this trans like state. It's funny. I also watched it at night, not uh, in the morning, which I think might have have affected my experience versus uh, your guys's. But. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I don't know. I was. I was a little. I was a little taken out of it by the by the people who were who were like chortling all around me. I mean, I was one of the chortlers, and my whole theater laughed when it was over. <laughs> uh, and so, and I think it's honestly, it's you created tension and you release tension periodically over the course of the movie. There's a lot of tension. I think it's. A, I think it's a funny movie. Yeah. I think that it's. I think it's making. I think there will be blood is a funny movie also. <laughs> I mean, I, I drink your milkshake is ridiculous, right? <laughs> I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy. <laughs> right? Like a drainage. Don't bully me, Daniel. Um, all this stuff is funny, and I guess part of why it's funny <laughs> is that <laughs> is that you have people who are playing. Incredibly committed, high status, but are not by your own judgment necessarily. They're foolish. There's a foolishness that a lot of these people have, but because of the social context of what they're doing, they not only do not recognize their own foolishness, but would oppose it intensely. Right? They oppose how foolish they are. Right? It's like I made a peanut butter and staple sandwich, and I'm going to eat it, and you can't do anything to stop me. Right? Like it's, but the staples aren't edible. It's like don't talk to me. Begin. You can't begin look the it. begin the ritual of peanut butter and staple making. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like start Mokuba. Start the. De- Nader. That, that's the, what's one of the last lines of the first, I think it's the, maybe the first or second season of Yu-Gi-Oh! Where <laughs> Seto Kaiba, everyone's escaping from the island, and Seto Kaiba goes to the secret base beneath the island and says to his little brother, who's like 10, Mokuba, start the detonators! <laughs> Sick. I might be, I'll be quoting that well, exactly. Right. So, so I guess, yeah, it's the combination of things that are very solemn and very frivolous, right? Yes, yes. That, like, exactly. uh, that, that disjunction, that disjunction sort of, uh, sort of does it. And and yeah, I guess it's a, it's one of the effects of the movie. Maybe the people who are watching it were better viewers of the movie than I was because I was sort of wrapped up in it. And like, I, I, I wonder if like one of the effects of all of the kind of the sumptuous visuals is to kind of rob you of your ability to 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 like shake your head a little bit and say, "Wait, hold on a minute. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. What are, <laughs> what are, what are you even saying? You know, <laughs> what are you what are you even eating right now? Like, you know." At what point does he cotton on that she's put an entire poisonous mushroom into his omelet? You know? <laughs> like the part where he method acts eating I wonder if he actually is eating a poisonous mushroom <laughs> at that point. 
<laughs> and oh, what part of what part of this movie did it cease being serious to you? The part with the giant Pacific Northwestern native totem pole and the giant paper mache dog head that causes a minor crisis by falling over, and then Daniel Day Lewis as the agonized method acting fifties high couture uh, fashion designer has to walk through a horror of party costumes of an incredibly like under designed quality that are just gauche and disgusting. How about that is like a horror scene, like this wonder, this amazing well, designer. Dia, I mean, we, this is the year of this scene, Dia de los Holcos and Coco. Yeah, you know? yeah that's so, true. Like, oh, so, man. A lot of, lot of paper mache. <laughs> the guy with the giant cowboy hat, who is, was he shirtless? I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, exactly. This was another Dia de los Holcos, but this one had, had an Oscar campaign behind it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right. By the way, can we interpret that the whole scene is throwing massive shade in America? Because uh, there was also a Confederate flag tucked in there. I don't know if you guys saw That's, that. Oh, there's another phantom thread. Jeez, I didn't see that one. I know yeah. the missiles are already in the air in retaliation, right? So I saw it on my phone. <laughs> it's All like, right. We saw a phantom thread. We're not amused. That's uh, that. That's probably a good place to. Uh, Leave the conversation. Thank you very much, Pete uh, and Mark. Thank you for listening. Happy 10th anniversary of Overthinking It. Uh, happy 499th episode. It's almost the big 500. If you'd like to uh, tell us a story, say something to us, anything that occurs to you for the uh, 500th episode, record a voice memo, send it to podcast at overthinkingit.com or uh, call 203-285-6401. 203 Five six four zero one. All right, that's it for this episode. We'll be back next week with the five hundredth Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Eat your mushrooms. <laughs> I eat them up. Yum, 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 yum. Delicious. Vomit. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bully me, Woodcock. <laughs> <sighs>